Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. If I have not had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Eric, and I am a pastor in training here uh, at City Church. So it's great to see everybody uh, this morning. If you've got a Bible and you want to follow along with the passage, go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 6. Uh, We're going to land there in just a minute, and we're going to spend most of our time in Deuteronomy 6. Um, So I don't know about you, but personally, I have a really hard time uh, with rules that I have to abide by that I don't know the reason behind. Uh, I, I don't have an issue with rules in general. I understand the concept. I think it's a good thing. Uh, but I feel like I have like this compulsion inside of me to just to ask why when there's a rule around me that I don't understand or that I don't like. I Uh, At the core of it, I think, I I want to know the reason behind the rules, not so that I can just like feel more enlightened for knowing the reason. Uh, I want to know the reason so that I can then judge whether or not I think it's a good enough reason for the rule for me to follow it. Um, So that's really what, what is deep down, because my assumption in those scenarios is that if I don't like whatever rule is in place, I'm gonna need to hear a pretty convincing argument as to why I should follow it. Right? That is my knee-jerk response. Um, and I've seen this play out in all sorts of ways ever since I was a little kid, all through my, my adult life as well. So I, uh, I actually used to work for the Y here in town for a few years. Um, and so they, like most organizations, have uh, an employee handbook that outlines the do's and don'ts of, of what it means to be an employee there. And my personal tendency in any organization or anywhere that I go is to just immediately turn to whatever it says about uh, appearance and dress code. That, for some reason, in my life, I don't know when I decided, but at some point in my life, I was like, that's the hill I will die on always. Uh, It doesn't matter what else is happening. Whatever you say about what I can and can't look like, I will fight you on that. Um, So I flipped over to that section uh, and, I, and I started scrutinizing what was in the, what was in the handbook. But it, it actually, the first thing that caught my eye in the handbook was that it, it said any and all employees are allowed to have any tattoos showing while working. I was like, that's fantastic. I love that. That's a great, that's a great rule. Uh, they said you could have piercings in your, like, in your ears. I was like, this is going so well. Uh, this is such a good handbook. Um, And then it said, no other facial piercings at all. And that got me thinking. I was like, why? Like, with those other rules, why would that be one of the rules that's in here saying that I was not allowed to to do that? Um, So I decided to build a case for why I thought I should be allowed to have my nose pierced at work. And I marched to HR with all my notes. uh, And I I laid it out for him. And I asked, like, why, why is this a rule when these other rules exist, and it seems to be kind of conflicting. And, and they said the reasoning was it was some kind of uh, appearance or image of the organization. They didn't, it gave the wrong kind of image to have a facial piercing. So I made the case that I didn't think that the 
the image portrayed with a nose ring was all that different than someone who, say, had full tattoo sleeves all the time. In my head, I was like, no, it's kind of the same image. Um, and do you know what they said? They agreed. Ah, oh, it was the most validating thing in the whole world. They were like, yeah, that makes sense. We'll change the rule. And I was like, really? This is great. Um, so I was ecstatic, not just with the new rule, but with my newfound power to apparently change the world. And so I decided to keep flipping through that handbook, and I was like, we're going to change all of this. Uh, and so there was another rule that I found that said anyone outside of aquatics was not allowed to wear sandals or open-toed shoes. And I was like, that's a terrible rule. And so I made another case, and I went back to HR, and I was like, well, explain this to me, like expecting to again, have the same process of feeling like I was uh, perfect in my interpretation of the rules and how ridiculous their rule was. Um, but instead, I was told, to that one, they were very quick. They were like, oh, a few years back, uh, a shelving unit fell and crushed one of our employees' feet. And they were wearing flip-flops, and our insurance company said that they were not uh, eligible for workers' comp because they didn't take safety precautions like wearing closed-toed shoes. So we have a policy that you can't wear open-toed shoes at work uh, so that you can be financially covered and protected in the case that you get injured. And I was like, oh, that's for really good reason. <laughs> and so uh, instead of trying to, you know, make my point about how I should be able to wear chacos anytime I want at work, I was like, mm, okay, no, I, I am the wrong one in this situation. That's a super good rule. Uh, and so uh, I felt a little humbled, we'll say. Uh, I, I did not bring up any other rules in the, in the handbook because uh, that, one, that one kind of put me in my place of like, well, maybe these aren't all bad. Uh, so I, I think I'm just going to roll with them. Uh, but I think to some degree that mentality exists in most of us, at, at least at some point or another. So most of us, whenever we hear a rule, especially one that feels random to us or just feels kind of distasteful, uh, we inherently want to question it. Anyone who has spent any time at all around kids, uh, or if you have been one, which I believe is most of us, uh, we know this all too well, right? They ask questions constantly, all the time. Uh, but I, I don't think that it stops as people get older. I, I don't think that once we are no longer children, we just are like, all right, I'm done asking questions. Um, I, I think it at least shifts a little bit. We maybe start using more complicated words and phrases to make us sound smarter, feel smarter. We're still asking the same questions, but it happens all throughout our life. So while a, while a toddler may ask you a thousand questions an hour about every single word that comes out of your mouth, I think at some point, all of us, as we, as we grow and as we mature and as we become adults, we do get to a point where we ask why, especially when it starts to come down to what I would call questions of morality or, or question of good and evil. We want to ask the question, why? And specifically, we want to know who gets to decide what is and isn't okay. Who, who, gets, to, who gets to decide that and why do they even get to be the one to decide that in the first place? Um, so we, we have a tendency to do that, and, and we're going through this series, we're, we're taking time to walk through the Ten Commandments, which is ten instructions that God handed down to his people in the Old Testament um, through Moses, and, and we're going to try to dig deeper into those as we go along through this series. But today, I want to at least try to answer the question of, of why, this bigger question of why. So we, we know that God gave these commands. We know he gave these instructions, and he gave several others throughout the, throughout the scriptures. And um, 
But people throughout history, at, at the time that these commands were given, and all throughout time after that, we have asked the question, why, why should we listen to you? Why should we listen to God? If he's saying these things, why should we trust him in the first place? Why should we even consider what he is asking? Not, not only why we should trust God, but we, we ask the question a lot of times, can I even trust God? And coincidentally, or providentially, if you want to call it this, Scripture actually addresses that question precisely, uh, which is super convenient. Uh, thank you, Holy Spirit. Um, so brief history lesson for you, and we're going to dive in. The Ten Commandments uh, were given, like I said, through Moses to God's people when they had just come out of Egypt. So they were in the wilderness. They had just uh, participated in what's called the Exodus from Egypt. That's why the book is called Exodus, because it's talking all about it. So the Israelites ended up getting out of Egypt and then wandering in the desert for 40 years before ending up in the, the land that was promised to them by God. So the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy which is where we are today, is actually 40 years later, after they have wandered through the wilderness for, for 40 years. And so Deuteronomy uh, literally means second law. That's what, the, that's what the word Deuteronomy means. So Moses is actually giving God's people a recap. He's like, hey, let's, let's review the laws that we uh, weren't so cool with 40 years ago, which is why we are where we are. Um, so he goes back over all 10 of them in Deuteronomy 5. And so at least part of the reason that this is happening, like I said, the Israelites are in the wilderness, not in the promised land yet, uh, because they didn't really seem to want to listen to God in the first place. Uh, that, that's why they are in this situation, instead of going straight to the promised land. So they, they were far too concerned with their own plans or their own perception of what was happening or their own opinions, and, and they weren't all that interested in what God had to say about all of those things. So they were doubting God's authority, they were doubting God's power, and instead of listening to him, they rejected him and his commands. And so that's, that's where they are now. And, and I think often we find ourselves in a really similar situation to them. So we, we have got all sorts of questions, like I said, to God's commands. We want God to prove to us that we should listen to what he has to say. And, and the baseline assumption, a lot of the time, is we probably know what is and isn't best for us, and God does not, but I might be able to be convinced if you can prove it to me, is the question that we ask God. But, but our operating assumption is probably not, though. I, I think I probably know what I should and shouldn't be doing. And people have been asking these questions and operating out of these assumptions forever, for all of time. We actually... Fortunately, see God anticipate this human response. He knows this is how his people respond. And so that's where we end up in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So go ahead and look at chapter 6 if, you, uh, if you've turned there in your Bible. We're going to start in verse 20. It says, In the future, when, not if, but when, your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? So God anticipates that people are going to have questions. And, and he said, to, he had Moses say to his people, hey, when your son asks you, and then he gives a pretty clear answer in this passage. He, he doesn't have to do that also, for the record. He is God. He could respond to that question with another question uh, along the lines of, do you have any idea who I am? That could have been his response when we say, why should we listen to you? But instead, he says, all right, when your son asks, why should I listen to you? 
he does give an answer. Because sometimes in the Bible, God, God does respond by saying something along the lines of, I'm God. That's my, that's my answer. Uh, but sometimes, like in this passage, he actually anticipates a question, and then he responds to that question with compassion. He, he deems it worthy of answering. And he actually gives us four different answers in this passage as, as to why we should trust him in his commands to us. And, and I want to spend the majority of our time today uh, looking through those four answers that we are given in this passage. And so the first answer to the question that we see of, of why should we listen to God uh, is that God saved us. It's the first answer we get. God saved us. So take a look. Keep reading in, in Deuteronomy. Take a look at verse 21 and 22. So it says, when your son asks, tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. So the very first reason we see uh, is the fact that, that God sent Moses to set his people, the Israelites that we're talking to, God sent him to set them free from slavery in Egypt. They, they had been slaves in this land for over 400 years at this point. And God, it says right there, God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And it was not subtle. God did not, like, quietly sneak them out, right? None of the Israelites were confused. They weren't like, oh, my gosh, how did we get out of Egypt? This is crazy. They knew exactly what happened. Like, God made a spectacle of it. And it says in the passage, God did all these things before our eyes. God saved the Israelites from slavery. And then, once they were out of slavery, he presented them with the commands. So, that's incredibly important for us to realize, I think. God did not give the law to his people while they were in captivity. Okay, God started by setting them free. God freed them first. And, and then he offered these commands. He set them free. He went out of his way to bring his people out of slavery first. He showed his love to his people by offering them redemption first. And then he gave instructions on what it looks like to live as a redeemed people. That's the order that, that this is happening in. So I think a lot of people today, when we think about God's commands, we think about it as a list of rules that we have to follow in order to be seen as good or in order to be seen as good enough. There's this mentality, even among people who have been around church for their whole lives, that uh, trying to follow God's instructions is, is a means to earning God's favor or a means to earning God's acceptance. If I do enough of these things, God will smile on me. Surely God will accept me if I do enough of these commands. Or I've I got to follow all of these rules for God to welcome me in. But if you look at how this is done in, in the Old Testament and how it continues to be, to be displayed, the way that God interacted with his people is that his commands came as a response to acceptance, as a response to being saved. So this is, this is not a list of rules or instructions on how to be saved. This is actually guidance on how to live as a saved people. Right? The Israelites were saved from their slavery first, and, and God, God did not stand idly by while his people were enslaved. He stepped in, he saved them and saved us, and then he presented them with these commands. 
right? That's the first reason that we're given as to why we should trust God, because God saved us. And so the second reason we see in this passage is that God is wiser than us. Uh, so keep reading in verse 23. Verse 23 says, but he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. So this one takes a little bit more explaining, I feel like. So let me show you how I, how I got to this conclusion. So if you are not familiar with the story or you just need a recap, like I, like I said briefly earlier, the Israelites didn't exactly start celebrating God's faithfulness as soon as they left Egypt. It's not, not exactly what happened. Uh, as soon as they were free and clear of their oppressors, literally as soon as they were out of Egypt, they started to complain. And, and not just like regular road trip complaining, right? They immediately started saying things like, we would have been so much better off if we had just stayed in Egypt, right? They were certain that God was trying to kill them by, by bringing them out at this point. They were convinced that God brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, just to watch them all die in the desert. That's what they felt like God was doing. Immediately after God went through all of those things that he did to set them free, all of the, the ways he put his power on display to liberate his people, they turned around immediately and accused him of not having a clue what he was doing. Right? They assume that he does not care about them. He just brought us out here to kill us. Even though he had just saved them from slavery, and he said he was taking them to a beautiful land that he promised them, they started freaking out. Right? Even though he, he was miraculously providing food for them every day in the form of manna from heaven, they were convinced he didn't care about them because they would prefer to eat something else. That's their response, right? This is, this is like the ancient Israelite version of if, if, if a kid was going to Disney World for the first time with his family, right? The second they get in the car, he starts whining about how the snacks are all wrong, right? This is a terrible trip. These snacks are terrible. This is taking way too long. Actually, I wish that I was just back in school. It would be so much better if I had standardized testing today. <laughs> right? You're like, kid, you don't have a clue what you are talking about. You have no idea how great things are about to be. I have so much planned for you, so much in store for you, and you just can't see it. But I, I know it's there. I have a plan. I promise I have a plan. And they're like, nope, this is terrible. You've ruined my entire year. <laughs> right? They, they were convinced, the Israelites are convinced that God had just abandoned them. Right after they had witnessed a series of miracles performed exclusively for the purpose of setting them free. But even in the midst of their complaining and in the midst of their doubting and in the midst of all of the stuff that they are doing, verse 23 shows us his plan all along. He had a plan. He knew what was going to happen. He knew what he had in store for them, even though they couldn't see it and they didn't understand. The whole time, he knew exactly what he was doing. He could see the whole picture, even when the Israelites couldn't. He, he could see, yes, you are in the desert right now, but he could also see that he was leading them to the promised land. God's knowledge and God's understanding of things is so much bigger and so much broader than ours. God can always see the whole picture. He knows exactly how, how our actions and our decisions are going to impact us now and in the future. He knows all of the effects of all of the things that we do. He knows all of that. He knows the whole story. And if he knows the whole story, 
he also knows what needs to happen in order for us to get where he needs us to be. He knows that part of the story as well. He, he knew the way to the promised land for the Israelites. He knew how to get them there. And even when they were complaining and they were convinced that God was just trying to kill them in the desert, he knew exactly what was coming and how to get his people through it. He had a plan for it. He's so much, so much more knowledgeable, so much smarter, so much wiser than we are. God understands so much more than we ever could. So the next reason we see in this passage uh, that, that we should trust God or that we are able to trust God is that God is for our good always. Take a look at verse 24. It says, The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. So I actually really like the way that the ESV says this. Uh, so we've been using the NIV, NIV translation, but the ESV translation of this verse says, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. So to me, this one feels pretty straightforward. Uh, it said very plainly, God's desire is for his people to prosper. God's desire is for the good of his people. It, it always is. We do need to be careful, though, I think, especially in, in modern American lenses, with modern American lenses, because at times, uh, people have actually taken this idea and gone a very different direction from what Scripture says. God, God does want his people to prosper. But that does not mean that God's definition of prosperity is exactly the same as the 21st century Americans' definition of prosperity. It's, it's not the same. We, we often think of prosperity as it, has to, it includes financial wealth and resources and comfort or whatever we can think of that just feels good. That's prosperity to us. But God knows what is actually good for human life and what is actually good for his people. And all of God's commands are meant to bring his people closer to that. He is for our good always in his commands. He, he didn't just set us free just to thrust us into a life of misery under his commands. That would be a huge waste of time. God is for the good of his people when he set them free from Egypt. He was for the good of his people when he made a way to experience freedom from slavery to sin. He, he knew all of these things. He's for the good of his people in the commands that he gives to us because he knows that those things will ultimately help move us closer to the way he intended things to be. Before brokenness entered the picture, before sin entered the picture, he, he knew what would be for our good from the beginning. God has a vision for how life should function. He, he has a vision for what human flourishing is. And he, he does know exactly what that looks like. And he is for the good of everyone. Everyone and all of his creation. That doesn't just include people. God is for the good of all of his creation. And he has a plan for that to happen, to get to that place. Right? God doesn't, doesn't free us from slavery just so that he can rob us of joy afterwards. He doesn't do that. If what Jesus did on the cross, we're going to talk about this more in a minute, was to give us life, then his commands are also to give us life. God is not trying to take anything away from you or withhold good from you with any of his commands. God is for our good always. 
always. So the last reason that we see in this passage for why we should listen to God is that God's commands lead us to righteousness. Verse 25 says this, And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. So the, the word righteousness or, or, or righteous may not be something that you think about often uh, as a desirable thing in life. You may just not think about it often at all. It might sound like something that you would hear from like a televangelist or, or an old school like fire and brimstone preacher. Uh, or maybe you're like me and all you can hear is uh, Crush, the turtle from Finding Nemo. It's like righteous all the time. That's what I think of. That's what happens in my brain. So just so you guys have a glimpse into what's going on in there. Uh, but if you really boil it down, righteousness, uh, it's, it's essentially the idea of, of being in right relationship with God, with others, and with yourself, and the world, creation at large. So righteousness is, is being in right relationship with God, each other, creation, and ourselves. That is true righteousness, everything being right between those things. And a desire for righteousness is actually something that we all have deep inside us. That is built into us as humans, as image bearers of God. We have a desire for righteousness. We have an aching longing to deepen our souls for righteousness. A desire for things to be right, for things to be whole, for things to be like they were meant to be. This is why when we see something happen, even if we can't explain why it seems so wrong, it just it just tears us up on the inside. We just think that it's just not how it should be. That is a desire for righteousness. And as, as much as we feel those things, God desires that so much more. And God desires for everything to move in the direction of righteousness. God is for our good always, like I said, but that's not just for our individual good. God is not just for the individual good of his people. God is for the good of his whole creation. The whole creation should be in right relationship. God wants his world to exist in peace. He, he wants to see it flourish. He wants to see justice done consistently. He wants to see compassion and mercy be the norm. He wants there to be rightness, righteousness in the world. God desires righteousness. And his commands lead us in that direction. And, and even in times when we may not see the whole picture or we may not understand exactly what is happening or we may not understand fully, God's commands exist for that purpose. God's commands help us put his intentions and his plans on display through the way that we live in order to help move all things towards reconciliation. And there are even times uh, where, where God's desire for restoration and rightness and righteousness in the world may, may not actually personally feel that great in the moment. Americans tend to struggle with this uh, a lot in, in general. We have a hard time with this because in our hyper-individualistic culture, we hear things like God is making things right and God is for our good. And what we actually hear is, God is making things better for me. And, and God is for my personal benefit always. And that is not what Scripture says. It is not. And, and it's not that things will never improve for you individually as a result of following God's commands. Sometimes that does happen. That is great. 
But God's plan for the good of his people as a whole does not necessarily include your personal convenience or your personal comfort. Uh, maybe, maybe I would put, put it this way and elaborate on it a little bit. Uh, God loves you so much. God loves every single one of you. For, for those of you here who, who don't really know what to make any of these things that, that we're talking about this morning, if you don't know what to make of that, God loves you. For, for those of you who feel like you may be well on your way to deciding that you think God is in fact not good, God loves you. For those of you who feel so utterly defeated or, or empty on the inside and who feel like you don't even have the energy to begin to care about any of the things that we are talking about, God loves you. If your mental health is so deep in the pits right now that you feel like you can't even see straight, God loves you. If, if you're still trying to figure out that you, whether or not you think God could even be good in the first place because of the way that some of the things are in our world right now, some of the things that you've seen happen to, to you or to people in your life, if that's you, God loves you. And for those of you who have been deeply hurt by, by people who call themselves Christians in the past and your guard is up and you're afraid to be vulnerable, God loves you. If there are things in Scripture that God commands that you find hard to stomach, God loves you. God loves you so much. And love is not undifferentiated approval. It's not. Love is not a synonym with affirmation. Love is not a guarantee of boundless pleasure and comfort in life. That's not what love is. One philosopher put it this way. Uh, he said, love is not synonymous with undifferentiated approval of everything the beloved person thinks and does in real life. Nor is it the wish for the beloved to feel good always in every situation and for him to be spared experiencing pain or grief in all circumstances. Mere kindness, which tolerates anything except suffering, has nothing to do with real love. No lover can look on easily when he sees the one he loves preferring convenience to the good. And this is such a hard concept for so many of us to get on board with. This, especially, like I said, 21st century America in particular. We have such a, hard, such a hard time with this sometimes. But it is so incredibly important for us to remember that when we say God loves us and God is for our good always... We don't mean his intention is just for us to feel good always. The fact that God is for our good does not mean that he will always do everything that he can to make it so that we don't experience pain or grief or the reality of a broken world that we live in. God loves you so, so deeply as you are, wherever you are, and he loves you far too much to let you stay as you are. He loves you too much for that. God wants righteousness for you, for all of us. And his commands are meant to lead us in that direction. His commands lead us to righteousness. They are meant to lead us to a place of wholeness with God and all of creation around us. God's commands are meant to move us towards the way that things are meant to be. 
the things that will be true at one point when, when Jesus returns and makes all things new. That is his desire for all of us. And, and that's the last reason that, we're, that we see in this passage, or that we're given in this passage, as to why we should listen to God, why we should trust God. God gave commandments to his people in the Old Testament, right? The Israelites. He gave them these Ten Commandments. And, and if you know much about the Old Testament, you know that they were never really that good at, uh, at being God's sons and daughters. They never really quite got the hang of it. Over and over, they disobeyed God. They went against him. And over and over, they ended up in some pretty terrible situations as a result of their wandering away from God. They strayed often from righteousness, like we've talked about. They ran from God time after time. But even though Israel continually fell short of being God's sons and daughters, God did eventually have a perfect son. Right? Jesus was, was one with God for eternity past. And, and eventually, Jesus entered our world as a human to put on display what righteousness and obedience truly look like. He, he was God in human form. And in the same way that God we see in the Old Testament saved his people, Jesus in his coming saved us. Right? His work on the cross freed us from slavery, but, but it's a different kind of slavery. Not, not many people in this room, I think, have been slaves in Egypt, but we are all slaves to sin. And, and that's what Jesus' work on the cross freed us from. Romans 6.6 6 puts it very plainly. We'll put it on the screen. It says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Jesus saved us, right? And, and Jesus is also wiser than us. He knew ultimately throughout his life, throughout his ministry, he knew ultimately that going to the cross was the only way despite his followers trying to stop it at every turn. His, his followers not understanding when he said this has to happen. He knew what needed to be done despite how completely outlandish it sounded. Who dies for their enemies? You can't, you can't defeat something by dying. That makes no sense. But, but Jesus knew the whole story. Jesus is, is, is smarter than us. He's wiser than us. He knew the whole story when everyone around him could not see it. He, he was and is and continues to be for our good always. In the same way, he endured a brutal death. He endured separation from God the Father for our sake. He offers us a life of hope instead of despair, instead of sorrow. And he offers us a life of freedom instead of slavery to sin as we pursue him. He is for our good. And, and Jesus' life also shows us exactly what righteousness looks like. He perfectly followed every single command. Never once did he, did he fall short or reject God or any of those things. He was righteousness incarnate. And through Jesus' work on the cross, all of his perfect righteousness is laid over us. That is what he accomplished. God looks at us 
And Jesus' righteousness stands in our place. And, and that's such a beautiful picture, too, to look back at how God communicated with his people all the way back in Deuteronomy. He knew exactly what was coming through Jesus as well. He, he knew that the righteousness of his son would be over his people. And his, his desire is for us to, to live into that righteousness. God, God tells his people in Deuteronomy, there will be a time when your son asks you, if you should even trust me at all. And at the same time, God knows that there is a time coming when he will give up his own son to answer that question once and for all. And if God does not spare even his own son in order to be in right relationship with us, if he can be trusted to follow through on that promise by those means, of course he can be trusted. He can be trusted in any situation. If he is trustworthy enough to do that, what can't we trust him with? So here's how I want to land today. I, I know people in this room are all over the map, likely, of, of your perception of God's commands, your response to God's commands. There's a broad spectrum of response to that. But I, I want everyone to just take some time uh, today, if you, if you can, or this week, because I think it will take some time to really to really think about and meditate on these things. Um, I want all of us to just take a step back and, and look at God's commands through a new set of lenses. So in, instead of us thinking about God's commands just as a list of rules that we, that we have to follow, and oftentimes a list of rules that we don't really understand, or sometimes that we don't understand, and then we, we push back against those, what, what if we approach them differently? What if, we, what if we thought about God's commands throughout Scripture in light of the fact that He has saved us, and in light of the fact that He is wiser than us, and in light of the reality that, that God is for our good, and, and that He wants to lead us to righteousness? What if we think about God's commands that way? What if we, what if we stop filtering God's commands through the lens of our, our own preferences and our own biases and our own assumptions, and instead we start filtering God's commands through, through the reality of who he is? What if, what if instead we, we start filtering it? I, I, think we, I think these questions can be a helpful way to start, to start doing this. Um, so we can ask, uh, what what might God be saving me from? What could God be saving me from through this command? We, we've said this before, and I think it bears repeating as often as possible. Uh, when we say God saved us, that is not necessarily just a, an amorphous, esoteric, like mystical thing that happened once and then we don't really know what that means or the implications that has for us. God literally saved us, like from our sin, from slavery, God rescued us out of, of slavery. It is, it is a continual, ongoing process. No one, when they are saved from sin, automatically stops sinning forever. That's not how that works. We don't, we don't immediately stop feeling the effects and the impacts of sin in our world. That's not what being saved is. God saving us is a daily process of him growing and shaping us to be more and more like him as we move closer and closer to righteousness. So God is saving us through his command. So what, what could God be saving me from? And we, can, we can also ask, 
Where might I be valuing my own wisdom over God's? When I'm, when I'm looking at God's commands, in what ways am I assuming that I have all the answers or that I have the best judgment? In what ways am I approaching God's commands as if I want him to fit into whatever plans or, or whatever idea of a, of a good life that I have made in my head instead of the other way around? Instead of knowing that God is, is wiser than us and knows more than us. We can ask how might this be for the good of God's people? How might this command that I am looking at actually be for the good of God's people? Because if God is for the good of his people, then his commands will move his people in that direction. They will. So, so even, and I would say especially, when our knee-jerk response and reaction to a command is to think that God's commands really aren't in line uh, with, with what I think is best for me. How might we actually think about those commands in light of the fact that, that God is actually for our good? God is for the good of his people and for the good of his creation. And, and the last question I think we can ask is, in what ways can this move me towards righteousness? In what way does this move me towards righteousness? In, in what ways could I move more towards right relationship with God or right relationship with others or right relationship with myself through these commands? How, how are we able to move in the direction of righteousness through whatever God is commanding? And, and these questions are just a starting point, hopefully. I, I would love for you guys to spend some time thinking and praying on those. Uh, and, and also, I just want to make sure that I say a disclaimer, I, I think I've made it clear, but we're not asking these questions so that we can then arrive at a place where it's like, well, now I've been convinced and I understand the rule and I'm going to follow them. We, we're asking these questions about God's commands from the place of knowing that these things are true of God and these things are true of our world. God is for our good. God did save us. God has done all these things in light of that, even in times when I don't understand. And there may still be times that we get through these questions and we go, I'm not sure. I really don't know. We, we are asking these questions in light of these things being true about God, and we have faith that one day we might understand, but more than that, we have faith that these commands are for the purpose of achieving these things. And, and we can obey and we can follow God's instruction. We can follow scripture because we know that all of these things are true. And when we understand God's purpose for his commands, the reason behind all of the instructions that he gives us, it, it helps us understand more about God's character. It, it helps us understand more about how deeply he loves us. It helps us, it helps us see the desires that he has for the world Instead of us feeling like we're just being restricted and held back. Because that's not what's happening. When we correctly see God for who he is and we understand that his commands all flow out of that reality, we are actually able to respond from a place of joyful obedience instead of begrudging rule following. We can experience so much freedom in life as a result of approaching God and his commands this way. And so what we're going to do, we do this every week, but we're going to have the tables open uh, to take communion together. For followers of Jesus, this is the way that we respond to the reality of what we just talked about, that Jesus saved us. 
that, that Jesus came and entered our world, that he lived a perfectly righteous life, and he died for us so that we could receive and be covered by that righteousness. And, and when we respond by taking communion together, we are, we are remembering that action that Jesus took in order to do that for us. We get, to, we get to reflect on the reality and the weight of what that means, but we also get to celebrate that reality in our lives. And so that's what we're going to do today. Um, so I invite you to pray with me as we, as we close.